Hi everyone, thank you for tuning in to the M2.0 series of Ampule, the Australian Medical Students Association's podcast. My name is Jasmine and I'll be your host for today's episode with special guests Dr. Art Nahil and Dr. Nick Sheckett. Our guests are Auckland-based physicians and educators who host the Clinical Reasoning podcast, I Am Reasoning, and they were generous enough to sit down with me for an interview about expectations and the reality of medicine. We talked about what really is the difference between the things we learn in medical school and what we actually need to know in practice. Art and Nick were very down-to-earth and had so much insight when it came to understanding the limitations we have, not only as medical students or doctors, but as human beings, in really achieving the expectations that we set out for ourselves and that medical school sets out for us quite early on in our careers. During the conversation, we debunked quite a few myths and also got insight into real-life practices that, for whatever reason, were not taught in medical school. The interview was both reassuring and quite inspiring. I hope you feel the same way. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording takes place, that of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I extend my respects to elders of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, past, present and emerging. AMSA acknowledges that sovereignty of this land has never been ceded, and this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hope you enjoy the episode. I'm only human, can you see? I made, I made a mistake. Please just look me in my face. Tell me everything's okay. Cause I got it. Ooh, never be like you. Welcome to today's episode. I'm Jasmine Debussy. My name is Nick Sheckett. And I'm Art Nahill. Nick and Art are our special guests for today. Thank you both for joining me all the way from Auckland, New Zealand. What's the update over there given the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, actually, today is the day that New Zealand has moved to what we call level two, which means that uh, we're pretty much back to business as usual with some new rules and restrictions for public spaces and businesses about how to maintain social distancing and how to maintain safety. But I think over the last few weeks, or last week or so, I think we've had three days of no new cases at all. And all of the new cases over that period of time have all been associated with the known clusters. Yep. Um, so it, it appears as though there's very little community transmission. So that's why we've been able to go down to level two. Yeah. So we're safe until we open the borders yeah, back exactly. up to, to Australia, for example. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would keep my borders shut if I were you guys. So don't blame you at all. But well, Australia is very exciting our to, concerns, to be honest. It's um, many other places that are still having difficulty. Yeah, indeed. And it's it's difficult because we can't tell when things are going to get better. It's a very uncertain time. But it is good news that New Zealand is seeing some progress, a lot of progress. So that's why we're meeting today virtually. We were hoping to be together in real life at some time late June in Melbourne. Thank you again for coming via Zoom. We would have loved to have come to Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> Always a welcome city. Oh, yeah, we would have loved to have you. <laughs> so, Art and Nick, why don't you tell us a bit about yourselves, maybe one or two sentence description for those listening who don't know who you are. Art, you want to start? Yeah, well, I'm Art Nahill. I'm a general uh, internal medicine physician. I trained in the U.S. where I lived up until 2005 before coming to New Zealand. I've been a hospitalist physician and a clinical educator since 2005 here in Auckland. Um, and a few years ago now, probably four or maybe even five years ago, we started I Am Reasoning to try to get the word out around clinical reasoning and diagnostic accuracy and um, how we might improve those things. So I've been working with Nick pretty closely for about the last 10 or 11 years. And my history is very similar, although a lot shorter, of course. Um, I, I hail from... The only from, thing that's shorter about you. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, 
The difference is that I hail from Canada where I did my training, uh, mostly in and around Toronto. I'm also a general internal medicine doctor uh, and also interested in uh, clinical education, uh, medical education, and, um, and clinical reasoning, and have loved being part of this I Am Reasoning project for the last four or five years. Awesome. I mean, I know that I've loved being part of it too as a, <laughs> as a listener. It is a great podcast, I have to say. Just a quick shout out to, to I Am Reasoning. So this convention this year, our theme was uh, new perspectives. Now, I just wanted to ask you briefly before we go into the actual uh, meat of the episode, what your take is on that theme. So new perspectives, what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, for me, the first thing that comes to mind is that how we practice medicine is changing really, really rapidly. Um, and that pace, I think, is accelerating and has been accelerated by the whole COVID-19 pandemic. I think that um, this is a really great opportunity to examine how we've done things and why we've done them the way we have uh, and to improve what we do. Because I think there are a lot of things, as we'll, I'm sure, talk about um, that really don't make much sense to learn medicine in the way we do in 2020 going forward. Yeah. yeah and, and the, you know, just to put a, a point on what's changed in the last few weeks, one of the things that we've noticed on a very practical level is, uh, you know, wh where are the patients? Where, where are all the patients that we usually have? The strokes, the heart attacks, the heart failures, the, uh, the cancers. Um, we don't know yet where they are, but we can, we know for sure that the hospital has been a lot less busy. Mm. And my understanding is that some of these acute problems that happen to our patients actually have reduced in, in incidence over the last few weeks, like heart attacks, mm. I know for sure. Mm. Um, so, you know, something is weird about the way that we normally do our day to day in the hospital. And this, this, uh, has brought it out. Even on the ambulatory side of things, I mean, so much now very, very quickly has ramped up to involve uh, distance consultations. So virtual consultations were really not very common, uh, certainly not in New Zealand uh, prior to the pandemic changing all of that. And um, now the vast majority of uh, clinic appointments, which you know no longer fortunately require people driving all the way to the hospital paying huge amounts of money to find a car park if they can, uh, schlepping all the way up to, to the doctor's office to be told that their tests are okay. Schlepping, I like Schlepping, that. yeah. So, um, so, you know, things are changing and, and will continue to change. And I, I personally welcome that. Same. Amazing, yeah. It's, it's really important to look at anything as coming with a silver lining and then looking at the, the opportunities that it offers whatever whatever it may be, as, as big of an impact it may have on the society, on the community. I think that's a very important point. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, on the topic of new perspectives, I mean, I'm, I'm personally a, a third-year medical student and I don't have, uh, you know, the, the experience of years of a medical practice. Uh, Nick, yourselves, you've been through this process. You've been through medical school. You've been through you know, internship training up to where you are now. So, so you have lots of, <laughs> lots of insight to offer. What I'm hoping to do to begin with is, is talk a bit about some things that we learn in medical school and not necessarily know for sure exist in practice or to what degree they apply in practice. So for instance, clinical science, we learn about pretty much all the signs that could ever exist that ever existed. But we don't necessarily get to see them all in practice, even just, you know, despite being on placement. And we don't really know if we'd ever see them. So I suppose I'll, I'll keep it open for now. What, what's your, what's your take on that? Well, we have spoken quite a bit about this in the past and it, you know, non ironically, it fits into the topic of mythology in, in medicine. So th there are a lot of clinical signs, uh, that are religiously taught in medical school. Medical schools all over the world continue teaching certain uh, clinical signs uh, that the last time I practiced them was either when I learned them in medical school 
or when I taught them to medical students, I'm ashamed to say, but it was part of the curriculum. You know, and some examples of that would be capillary refill time. Capillary refill time, although we still get it on the notes. We still, we still see it on the we notes. We still see it all the yeah. time. Egophony, I think that was one that you brought up, Jasmine. Um, and whisper. Kernig sign. Whisper pectoriloquy. Uh, chest expansion. Drifting <laughs> down this. We could go on and on the and puddle on. sign. I mean, there's a lot. So there's so there's a lot of stuff that you will never actually do again because no one does. And there's and there's also a lot of stuff that you will do and you will see in clinical practice. But funny enough, it's useless. And so there's there's those two camps as well. Mm, okay. Well, you. you had a bit of a list there of some signs that have questionable importance. Um, I'm wondering if you can draw on your experience and, and tell us a bit about any signs that were actually, were actually good, so like most influential in changing your clinical decisions once noted. Vital signs. <laughs> Those are important. Uh-huh. Yeah, patient observations are really critical. Yeah. Um, and, and, and observing the patient, actually. Just the, yeah. the general gestalt of how does this patient look, that's actually very useful. And, in fact, it's been validated on it for multiple diseases as being predictive of whether certain diagnoses exist or not. And I guess, uh, you know, it's, it's probably disingenuous of us, and we're just doing it, I guess, to be a bit iconoclastic. But, you know, a lot of these things that are taught have some utility, but rarely do they have utility in isolation. So, for example, you know, all of the things we learn in medical school regarding how to assess someone's volume status. And there was this belief that I had, certainly coming out of medical school, that it was really an easy thing to do to assess someone's volume status. And what I have learned over time is that it is probably, for me, the hardest thing to do in all of clinical medicine. Now, if somebody is on one extreme or the other of volume status, either extremely dehydrated or extremely fluid overloaded, well, then, you know, you might find that their capillary or axillary sweat uh, is decreased uh, that they have skin turgor, <laughs> that their eyes are sunken, their eyes are sunken, you know, their capillary refill time is prolonged. To be honest, none of those things are useful for the vast majority of people when trying to. Most patients are in that middle ground zone, certainly middle ground enough that those extreme findings are rarely going to be useful. You know, like again, blood pressure and heart rate are probably far more useful than many of those signs for fluid status. And asking the patient, are you thirsty? You know, assuming that they're mm. cognitively intact, um, asking them, are, are you thirsty is probably, I don't know that the studies have ever been done, but probably as accurate as capillary refill time in adults for assessment of volume status. So there's lots of things that you come out of medical school thinking, these are really going to be helpful. And then you encounter patients where they are far less than helpful. I think what it also brings up, and, and, and maybe we're going to speak a little bit more about probabilities and, and how to reason through certain probabilities a little bit later. But, you know, one of the things that I encountered repeatedly is comments like, well, there was no fever, fever therefore it can't be an infection. Or the patient uh, didn't have chest pain, so it can't be a myocardial infarction. The Koenig sign was negative, so, so it can't, it be, can't meningitis. be meningitis. Right. Well, Koenig's is a special special category because <laughs> it is truly useless. But even those other signs that I guess would be considered predictive or suggestive of certain diagnoses, none of those are a hundred percent because there's really nothing that is a hundred percent. There's no historical piece of information, there's no physical exam finding or even investigation that has 100% utility. And so everything is probabilities. If you have no fever, maybe you're thinking twice about whether it's an infection, but it certainly doesn't rule it out. And so it's all probabilistic thinking. And I think that's one of the traps that that we run into in medical school as students learning is, you know, X equals Y, finding equals diagnosis. and that's that's myth. An absence of finding equals absence of diagnosis. Right. Yeah, I think you have touched on a really important point there 
in terms of not, yeah, not relying completely on any given positive or negative. I think that leads well into what I was going to ask you next, which is about false positives and negatives. So in your experience, I, I guess, especially as a junior doctor where you, you haven't had an, much experience, you haven't seen many signs, do you remember maybe an instance where you got a false positive, well, you got a positive sign, you didn't know it was false, <laughs> or you got a, you got a positive or a negative sign and it led you down the wrong path? Certainly, I have memory of getting positive findings on objective tests like blood tests or imaging studies, which have definitely led us down the wrong path. In fact, there's for radiology, there's, there's an actual name for it. It's called vomit, which is victim <laughs> of medical imaging technology. And it's, it's sort of the classic where you do a scan for some reason, good indication or not. And, and the trouble is the amount of scans that we do for not great indications and then come across this problem. But you do a scan, you find something which may or may not be related to what you were looking for. And now you have to go down and keep on following that finding. It leads to biopsies. It leads to more radiology. It leads to more findings. It leads to treatments, which are sometimes erroneous. And so. You know, our medical imaging, as one example, has gotten so sophisticated and so high fidelity that there's a lot of stuff that we find now that we would never have known about 30 years ago. Yeah. And in terms of physical findings, I mean, I've certainly been misled by grossly elevated JVP, for example, on those rare occasions when I can actually see the JVP and estimate it accurately. When it's grossly elevated. <laughs> it's grossly <laughs> elevated. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the patient has had rip-roaring TR, which I didn't know about, uh, and their volume status was misinterpreted based upon their JVP. I've also had the experience of people having, quote unquote, crackles in their lungs. And so they therefore must be in heart failure and they receive whopping doses of frusamide until their kidneys go off. Um, but their crackles still are there somehow. So, yeah, I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about and and really teach very well is that all of this, as Nick says, is just moving up or down the probability of a particular diagnosis. It's not as though this is a binary thing where you either don't have this diagnosis or you do. It's usually a question of, well, there's probably a 10% chance that this is diagnosis X, whereas you know a whole bunch of findings together might make you think, well, no, maybe now this is about 70% likely. And throw, throw in the complexity of multifactorial symptoms. And so, in fact, it's not just one diagnosis that's at play. It's many diagnoses that are at play. You know, the example you just gave of crackles despite their kidneys going off and still having crackles and you're still flogging them with diuretics, it could be that you have the diagnosis wrong and they have interstitial lung disease, but it could also mean that their heart failure is so bad that you, <laughs> you, you just can't get control of it without throwing off their kidneys. So there's even there, there's still a lot of uncertainty and you don't know whether what, what you're seeing is because you got the diagnosis wrong or because things are very severe or because you haven't tried hard enough. All sorts of uncertainty still remain. Yeah, that's kind of scary if you think about it, especially for a med student just, you know, just graduated <clears throat> and needs to think quickly about what investigations need to be made. And even during med school, you know, studying, putting it on an exam paper, we need to know what kind of tests are appropriate and so on and so forth. So in real life, in, in actual practice, what do you think everything that you just mentioned means, you know, for, for a doctor's practice? So should we continue to pursue those investigation pathways but with caution or take it step by step? So what the, what's the advice coming off from that? Well, yeah, we don't mean to scare people away, but there is a lot of uncertainty in medicine. And I think the biggest take home message for me is that you need to be humble and you need to realize that all you're doing is collecting a bunch of data points and trying to fit it to the best possible diagnosis. But you could be wrong. So, for example, if you know, I have somebody who I really think is in heart failure, but their BNP is negative. You know, I wouldn't immediately assume that they don't have heart failure. It just means that I need to look at that test and I need to say, what is the likelihood ratio, the, the negative likelihood ratio of this test with relation to heart failure? So I really think this person has heart failure. In fact, I'm 90% sure that this person has heart failure. 
So you can look up the negative likelihood ratio of a normal BNP, let's say in somebody who is obese and it is routinely falsely negative. And all that does is it lowers my post-test probability from 90% to about, I don't know, 70%, for example. So you just need to know and remember that you're just playing probabilities. You're just playing odds. The other practical point that I'll, that I'll make that's related is I think it's worth doing that analysis, which Art just described, before you decide to do the tests. And so knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty, knowing that X does not equal Y, it just changes probabilities, you have to decide before you do the test how different results will make you think about the patient at that point. So rather than, so in terms of should we not do tests or should we continue doing tests given all the uncertainty, which ones do I order? Decide beforehand what that test will tell you with differing results and decide whether that's going to help you. I'll give you an example today, which is not exactly about diagnosis, but it's a practical management issue. I had a 95-year-old woman who had all sorts of different problems, some of which she didn't want treatment for, some of which she didn't want investigation for, and she presented with new heart failure. And we were fairly certain that this is what she had, and she was now better two days after some effective diuresis. Normally, under these circumstances, we do an echocardiogram. And we do this to look at their left ventricular function. We also do it to look at their valves. And there's all sorts of therapeutic consequences of knowing of having this information. But we knew that the the question about diuresis and how much was going to depend on something else. It was going to depend on her clinical status. And we knew that if we found any major problem with her valve, she definitely did not want to do anything about it other than conservative management. And so in that situation, we decided, actually, there is no utility in the echocardiogram because it, the information that we were going to get from it was not going to change any of our management. Yeah, on that note of investigations, and I think Art mentioned something about post-test post probability. Do you think you can elaborate a bit on that uh, idea of post-test, pre-test probability and what that's all about? Um, sure. I mean, it's a it's a more involved uh, a more involved topic, but it's it's really it gets at what's called Bayesian reasoning, and every historical question that you ask, every physical exam finding, every lab and X ray finding has associated with it what's called a likelihood ratio, which ultimately is based on the sensitivity and specificity of the test. And don't get Nick started on this because he'll want to bore you with all of the calculations that go into it. But I'm dying to do it right now. <laughs> but suffice it to say that if you look up the likelihood ratio for a particular test, the farther away it is from one, the more valuable it is as a diagnostic test at telling you, you know, how much you can move from your pre-test impression. The closer it is to one, the more worthless the test is. So I mentioned the Koenig sign before. If you look up the likelihood ratio, the positive likelihood ratio for Koenig sign or the negative likelihood ratio, that is if the Koenig sign is not present. So let's say you have somebody who comes in and you think, gosh, they, they've got fever, they've got headache. You know, they've got a rash. They're the right demographic. I really think there's a very high possibility, let's say 80%, that they've got meningitis. And so you do a Koenig sign and it's negative. Well, the negative likelihood ratio for Koenig sign is about, I don't know, 0.75, I think, just off the top of my head. Maybe even, maybe even closer to one than that, which basically tells you that because the Koenig sign is negative, uh, they have moved basically from a 90% chance of having meningitis to an 89% chance of having meningitis. So based on that test, you shouldn't say that they don't have meningitis. The, the funny thing about I don't, can't remember if it was Koenig's or Brzezinski's sign, but one of those two, the positive likelihood ratio was measured, was estimated to be in one study at 0.97, which is actually somewhat ironic. It's almost like laughing at the test. It's like if you have a positive test, you actually are technically less likely to have meningitis, which is not the purpose of the test. Uh, so both of those tests are considered pretty useless when it comes to discriminating meningitis, yes, no. So another example would be, for example, if you've got a 
60-year-old woman, let's say, a 60-year-old woman who comes in with substernal chest discomfort that's exertional in nature, it radiates up to her jaw and down her arm, it's associated with nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis. She's anxious. Yeah, she's just anxious. <laughs> um, and, you know, she's hypertensive and she has high lipids and she smokes. You know, you've got the, you know, the cards are stacked against her. The likelihood that that is coronary artery disease presenting to you is about 90%, I would say. I'm just guessing off the top of my head, um, but 90%. So you decide to put her on a treadmill, for example, an exercise uh, ECG, and it's negative. What does that mean? Does it mean that you send her home and say, don't worry about it. You, you had a negative stress test. You're all good. Go and do whatever you like. Keep smoking even. It doesn't because the negative likelihood ratio of an exercise stress test, particularly among, you know, middle-aged younger women is not that helpful. So it might move you from, let's say, 90% to, I don't know, 80%. 80% or 70%. Is that enough for you to discharge that patient without doing something more? No, it isn't. So in that circumstance where you have a very high pretest probability of something being coronary artery disease, you wouldn't choose to do a test that doesn't have a very good likelihood ratio. So in that instance, for example, you might just go straight to an angiogram, which is what I would do. So all of these things come back to probabilities. I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you said, Art. You, you've been talking about guessing pretest probabilities. Yeah, I shouldn't say guessing. <laughs> well, well, you, maybe you should. I mean, this is one of the fudge factors in this game that we play with likelihood ratios. The pretest probability, uh, you know, there are no rules really about how to choose that number. And what I would say is if you had zero information, so for example, you say, look, You've got a patient, you wonder if there's a diagnosis of heart failure, and you're going to do this test. You're going to see if they have an S3, okay? And you're going to, based on that result of that S3, when you auscultate their heart, you're going to tell me, you know, what the chances are that they have heart, heart failure. Well, if you know nothing about this patient, how could you possibly choose a pretest probability to use and apply a likelihood ratio from the S3 to then get a post-S probability. Oh, I know, I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> How? Well, you would go by basically the prevalence of heart failure among similar patients who present to, let's say, an emergency department where you're seeing the patient. You have to use, without any other information, your best estimate of the disease prevalence in that particular population. Right. And so... How'd I do? You did. You got it. You <laughs> nailed it. So, but that is exactly the point. The simplest formulation of a pretest probability will always start with, well, what is the prevalence of disease of this disease that we're looking for in this population? And every extra bit of information that moves you up that pretest probability will add and will make that pretest probability a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And you get to choose, and this is the fudge factor, how much does that move you up? Because we don't have the operating characteristics of each of those risk factors necessarily. You know, but sometimes we use, I don't know, the Framingham risk sure. stratification score, whatever. So you can, there are certain prediction rules where you put, put in a bunch of information that says, this is what the risk is in this, in people of this population with those factors. That's your pretest probability. Now apply the likelihood ratio of the e ETT or whatever other tests you decided to do. Yeah. So in that example, if you just took all 60-year-old women who present to an emergency department with chest pain, um, you could probably look this up and find the number. Yeah. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'm guessing that maybe 40% of those people will have coronary artery disease as the etiology of their chest pain. So you're probably starting at about 40%. When you add in the fact that it was very, very suggestive in terms of its exertional nature, its radiation, its associated signs and symptoms, or other risk factors, yeah, you do end up making a guess. But, you know, your gestalt is actually pretty reasonable in that circumstance. And so most people, if you ask them that question, even medical students, they'll say, well, yeah, I think there's a very good chance that this is angina and this represents coronary artery disease. So that's sort of how you, you fudge your yeah. pretest probability. And, and, and on a practical level, if, you, if you're already sitting at very likely, 
like 70-80%, you don't need more uh, evidence to progress the, you know, the investigations for coronary disease. If you had one test that moves you completely off that chart and goes all the way down to 5%, well, that would be a test worth doing. But I don't think you have, you know, I, I, there, there isn't a test like that, really, in that case. And so in, if you thought it was so likely, based on all those clinical features that we just mentioned, you would probably end up progressing to the definitive test, which is an angiogram. A lot more than we intended to say on yeah, this topic. a lot more than you uh, anticipated <laughs> and wanted. <laughs> I can see your eyes glazing over, Jasmine. Oh, no, it's just I have a very keen question, which is essentially, is there a list of pretest probabilities or is there like a database where doctors actually refer to or is it just what you said before, more of a feeling of where, like a cognitive process of whether this is actually going to be worth it or not? There's there's definitely many resources to find likelihood ratios. You know, examples are Google, uh, it works, um, but also uh, VNNT, literally T-H-E-N-N-T dot com. Stands for the number needed to treat. Yeah, and they've got a collection of a lot of disease uh, summaries there as well, but they also have those likelihood ratios. Uh, DX Logic, there, there's, a, there's a few resources that will give you likelihood ratios. Pretest probabilities, I think it's disease specific. It all depends on whether it's been studied. Yeah, so if you look up, if you Google, for example, prevalence of CAD, uh, middle-aged women, chest pain. Presenting um, to the emergency department. Right. You'll probably find a couple of studies that, observational studies, that have characterized what percentage of people of that category presenting to an emergency department will turn out to have had that particular disease uh, as a cause of their presentation. And that gives you a rough idea. So we're big fans of Dr. Google uh, when used correctly. So do you actually look up likelihood ratios regularly or is, how does that work for you in practice? I mean, I certainly used to look them up quite regularly. And, you know, because at some point in your career, you start seeing the same things over and over again. You know, some of those likelihood ratios, I have a pretty good sense of what, what they are. So I don't look them up that often anymore. It's a rough exercise, I would say, overall. We're not talking about, you know, I'm not going to come away from the ward round after having looked up the likelihood ratio and say, now I know what they have, right? It's, it's a rough game. I mean, I, I think about it mostly when I find a test surprises me. Like, I thought this BMP was going to be positive because I was really sure this person had heart failure. I don't have to look it up anymore, but I used to look it up all the time to say, well, if it's negative, how reassured should I be? How, how much does that tell me this person doesn't have heart failure? Currently in clinical point, practice... Point zero six, by the way. Yeah. Negative likelihood yeah. ratio. So it, currently in practice, I use it mostly or I think about it when I have a test that really surprised me, that I, I just... Didn't expect that to come. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense and is very reasonable. So this is a lot to consider, you know, in, in practice, you know, clinical science, investigations, likelihood ratios. And I think that's a good segue into the next topic, essentially, which is about the feeling that you need to know everything. And I think that starts in med school where there's, we're, we're taught everything from scratch, from interleukin to you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So, I mean, how much, and that can be very overwhelming. I, I mean, I'm sure you felt that way in medical school, but I feel that way as well. So is it true that we actually need to know everything? What, what is your perspective on that? Well, first of all, I've never felt that way. Um, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely incorrect. Um, we talk about imposter syndrome all the time. Look, f first of all, you know, every question that you're asked in medical school has an answer, right? If you get asked a question about the inflammatory cascade, there will be an answer. You're, you're either right or that. wrong. Or yeah. <laughs> in, in clinical practice, most questions do not have an answer, do not have a definitive answer. And so it's quite a shift, I think, in mindset that you have to go through. But look, I think we have to stop the pretense that we can and should know everything. Because the amount of medical knowledge that we are theoretically responsible for doubles something ridiculous like every 17 days. 
And so the idea that anyone can hold that information in their head or should hold that information in their head is just ludicrous and we have to get over ourselves. I look up things all the time because I have a limited brain capacity and I need my brain to actually think. I don't need it to hold facts because in my smartphone is a compendium of more facts than the human brain could possibly hope to retain. So I need to be able to think, not carry around extraneous facts. Yeah. I mean, I, I share all of those same feelings and I, it sounds very familiar to me, the feeling of that pressure of having to know everything. For some reason, knowing what you need to know before the moment clinically that you actually needed to know it, that's the that's the goal, right? I mean, if you you can never actually look up a fact in the moment. You know, that's like, oh, that means I didn't know it. But if you knew it before you needed it, that's good enough. Now, it doesn't matter if you read about it five minutes before or three years before, as long as it was before you needed to know it, right? But I mean, we should just, like Art said, we should just give that up. The most liberating thing is becoming comfortable with not knowing and admitting that you do not know and advertising that widely to your colleagues, to your patients. I'm not sure about this. I'm going to do some reading and I'm going to figure this one out, but I don't know. The trouble is medical school lags well, well behind real life when it comes to this pretense of needing to know everything. And you know, this may be a, very well be a completely other topic, but we radically have to change how we educate and evaluate people in medical school. Easy for us to say because we've got through medical school, but we really, really need to radically overhaul. But, but what you're referring to is a very specific and very practical point about the method that we teach. And it's something that we talk about when we talk about clinical reasoning and how how we think as, as practitioners. Most medical schools still operate and, you know, most knowledge acquisition, you know, in medical school, whether you're being taught it directly or whether you as a student say, geez, I need to learn about that. The way that you do that is you pick a disease or a diagnosis and you read everything there is to know about that disease so you know about it, right? That is how you collect facts and knowledge. And then the next time you go to the emergency department to see your next patient, no one shows up with, I have a disease, please tell me about it and treat me. No, they say, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. And now we have to reorient our entire knowledge base from the filing cabinet of diseases to the filing cabinet of symptoms and feelings and presentations and where do we draw that knowledge from different ordering you know different way of organizing your your knowledge so we really need to push medical schools to teach symptom problem based knowledge acquisition as opposed to disease specific knowledge acquisition and i still don't know why every examination is not an open book examination you know it's just it's completely impractical you know, in real life, we are constantly looking things up. And part of being smart is knowing where to look things up. Asking someone to retain disembodied bits of information in their head only so long as they can regurgitate it back in an examination situation is not what real doctors do. Uh, and why we continue to test that way, I'm, I'm not really sure. It seems quite ludicrous to me. Right. I think that's not only reassuring, but makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of students and, and doctors need to hear that. For you guys, was there a point in time where you came to this realization or like, was it a gradual, gradual thing for you? I mean, I have to say, I almost, I always resented the culture within medicine of, you know, knowledge was king. And, you know, part of what I resented about that is that it was such a strong culture that it didn't just in, in that culture, it doesn't just say something about your knowledge or your competence when you are mediocre or lacking in that department, it somehow says something about you as a person. And, you know, that's the part that I resented. I was, you know, I was never one of these walking encyclopedias. And I knew people who strive to be that. And that is, and that was what was so highly valued. But I would walk around not having all this knowledge, but thinking, but I'm well-rounded and I'm interested in other things. And I ha have all these other things in my life. And that's worth nothing in this environment where it's all about being clever and being knowledgeable. 
And I would say it's not really even about being clever. It's about being able to retain disembodied information. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think for me, it was quite early on because I, I've always been interested in other stuff and I was sort of a fairly reluctant medical student to begin with. And I, I sort of had a sense that a lot of what I was learning was totally worthless and, and that I would never use it again. And I bitterly resented being forced to learn it only for as long as it took me to spit it back out in an examination setting. It um, probably started with anatomy class. Even I had a sense in anatomy <laughs> class that, that, you know, that there is no way that I'm actually going to use this stuff, you know, in real clinical practice. And I think that's borne out. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you have to know anatomy, you have to know physiology, pathophysiology, but the amount and the extent to which you're expected to know it. That's my, that's my dishwasher. <laughs> Sorry. The well, hey, priorities, okay? I, I needed to get the dishes clean. Okay? Right, right. Yeah, I resented it quite early on. But then when I became uh, an educator, I started being vocal about how stupid it was. But people generally who have made a career out of being medical educators, many of them don't want to acknowledge that we radically need to change how and what we do. And that culture is so strong. I went to a school called McMaster Medical School, which is in, in it's close to Toronto. It's in a city called Hamilton. And they were the first in the world to do, they sort of invented problem-based learning for medical education, for medical school. And so from the very beginning, the way that I learned about medicine was using cases. And it was an integral, integrated approach. So we had to learn the physiology and the anatomy and et cetera, all about this one case. And it would all be centered around these cases. But even in that setting, which sounds ideal, the way that we learned about stuff was we went to the textbook and we read about heart failure. It was a case that was based in a disease and it still wasn't look, the patient's going to present to you in this way. What's your approach to that situation? Not what is your approach to this disease, which is what we still do, even in a, in a school like that. So we've talked a lot on our podcast, Jasmine, about frameworks, about the need to use frameworks. Um, I didn't learn a single framework that I can remember from medical school. All of the frameworks that I've learned, I've learned basically on my own, because I had no scaffolding upon which to hang all of this disembodied information. And I have, you know, I've never had a, a particularly good memory. And so, you know, for me, it's always been vital to connect information to something broader, to a larger picture that I can then begin to fill in the details of. And I, so, re I remember actually recognizing early on that I, I needed something like that. I needed some sort of a skeleton to, no pun intended, to attach, you know, uh, th these bits of, of knowledge. And I remember one of the first books that I found, it was not recommended by anybody. It was not a, you know, but it was this paperback book, sort of a longish paperback book. And it was patient presentations and an algorithmic approach to find the diagnosis. Now, I knew nothing. I was a very junior medical student and these algorithms, they were helpful if I actually had to do something, but I had no idea why I was following these, you know, flow charts down to a certain diagnosis. But I just remember even then I recognized that I needed a way of navigating from patient presentation to the right diagnosis, considering all the other possibilities, not, you know, let's read about heart failure, let's read about pneumonia. Yeah, I certainly agree with all that. I think it resonates with me because, yeah, it's true in med school, a lot of the time it's just a lecture on, it may be a lecture on a certain presentation, but then it will just go into that condition and how we approach that condition. But I do see schemas and uh, frameworks a lot more often. I think it's definitely the way forward. Thanks to, to people like you who are willing to, you know, put them out there and actually provide that additional learning resource. So thank you. I did want to touch on something that Nick mentioned earlier, though, which was about navigating that culture, almost a toxic culture of knowing everything or being clever, you know, because it's not that everyone agrees that, you know, oh, we, we don't need to know everything. Some people do go about their day-to-day -day life convinced that that is the expectation, that's the necessity. Not only our peers, so doctors, maybe your own students, but um, even patients. So how do you go about, I guess, yeah, navigating your way through that? And how real is that from your experience? Well, look, I, I think because of the way we test medical students, 
we can we give a lot of lip service to the fact that we are changing our expectations. But in fact, I would be willing to bet that the pressure on medical students now to quote unquote know everything uh, was just as intense as it was when I trained. Only there's a hell of a lot more stuff to know. So I I do think that it's a it's a major like back problem. when you trained. You mean like the leeches? Yeah, we didn't even have antibiotics. Yeah. No. <laughs> We had penicillin when I tried. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think that we've changed all that much, to be honest. And I think one of the ways that we can change culture, and we do this all the time when our, in our ward rounds, we just say, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. We, we'll have to look it up. And, you know, I, I think there's a fear among certainly medical students and even among our colleagues, I think, that if you admit that you don't know something in front of a patient, my God, they're going to think that you're an imposter. They're going to, they're going to, it's going to validate your own imposter syndrome and they're going to think you're completely and utterly incompetent. Well, I can say that that's not my experience ever. Maybe they've gone away and they thought I was an idiot, but they haven't reacted that way. <laughs> uh, Patients often will will finish that conversation with comments like, you know, thank you for being so honest about that. And they, they truly appreciate that there's uncertainty because you've explained it to them and that you're going to go look for answers, whether it's from colleagues who know more or from books or articles or whatever it is that you need to educate yourself on to do the best thing for them. And they appreciate that you're trying, you know, that that's the pathway. I think it I think it shows your humanity. I think it shows them that you are not all that different than they are, and I think it helps patient rapport. And at the end of the day, I don't think that there is anything more dangerous than a doctor who pretends he or she knows something when they don't. And so I think we all just need to take a step back and learn to recite the mantra, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You now, know, one one of the other aspects that's that's related to this is is a realization that it probably I didn't come across until I don't know a few years ago. Anyway, it was it was recently, which is that the way that you become an expert and know things or know things at the expert level is because those are the things that you do every single day. And so, actually, if I don't do something every single day. How could I possibly be expected to be an expert in that thing? And yet there is also a culture and an expectation that, well, this disease falls within my turf and therefore I should know everything about it. Uh, like, you know, intestinal nematodes, malaria and, <laughs> you know, tuberculosis. But I mean, the truth is that if I don't deal with those things every day, then I couldn't possibly be an expert because being an expert is having experience. It's the same root word. It's having experience. And if I can't accumulate the experience, I couldn't possibly have that intuition, that gut feel, and that expert level knowledge of the thing that I don't do. Thanks, Nick and Art, for that. It's really an insight and I think something really important for all of us to keep in mind, working, particularly working in medicine, because it's more than just about knowledge, isn't it? It's about your interactions with your patients, the relationships that you build, and your well-being as well. <laughs> so all very important things to keep in mind. Okay, I think we're just about out of time. So I want to firstly thank you both for joining me today and want to give a bit of a shout out to I Am Reasoning. So where can we find these episodes? Well, there's the, there's the website, imreasoning.com. You can, you can actually listen to them all there, plus a few extra little bits like Facebook Live things that we've done and other lectures. Most people will just find I Am Reasoning as a podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, any of the other apps that you use, you'll find I'm Reasoning there. Just search it up. And we're all, we also have now a growing presence on social media. No thanks to us, uh, but thanks to our lovely Madison and Stephen who are helping us in that regard. And so we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. IG. Getting with the times. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. So yeah, look up I'm Reasoning. There's no one else called I'm Reasoning one word, so we're the only ones there. <laughs> Lovely. And one question before you go, I guess just to round things out a bit. Is there a mantra other than, I don't know, <laughs> uh, or a single, or a single <laughs> piece of inspiring mantra you've left them with? <laughs> no. no I, <laughs> That's you don't want to say message. too much because then you, then you do look like you don't know anything. <laughs> So, so yeah, the question was, is there a mantra or a single piece of advice that you, you live by, that you try to live by? 
if, if I could just play on the I don't know for a second, <laughs> I think a better mantra is I don't know yet. Because I don't know. Let me find out. Yeah, I don't know. Let me find out. I mean, I think the mantra would be something related to that, something related to we all felt like imposters at some point. Many of us still do feel like imposters. We just have to live with that and and live with the uncertainty that is inherent to what we do, whether what we do is going to help and the inherent uncertainty in medicine in general. I actually love that. Art, what did you want to say? Well, that's a long mantra. I mean, <laughs> that's not a good mantra. luck. Good luck repeating that yeah. over and over and Putting over again. A bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I think related to that, it's just important to be humble because humility allows people to meet you on their terms. Um, it allows you greater empathy, and I think it allows you to move into that space of uncertainty with a lot less trepidation. You know, if you if you just accept that you are limited and that we work as a team and that I certainly wouldn't be as good at what I do had I not worked with Nick, and no one knows everything. So just be humble, and um, good things will come of it. Okay, so here's the bumper sticker. <laughs> I am humble. I don't know, but I will find out. That's short enough. Come on, we can definitely do yeah, it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thank you, Nick and Art, again for a wonderful episode, all your insight and life advice. <laughs> I think I might change my bumper sticker. <laughs> but yes. Okay, thanks again, and hopefully see you next time. All right. It's our pleasure. Hope you enjoy. Good luck with the conference. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Answer and Pill podcast M2.0 series. Our code week this week is coffee. If you go to our website m2020.com.au and insert the code word into the portal, you go into the running for some great prizes and giveaways. And over the course of our series, you'll be able to collect an image per week for our M20 sticker book. The AMP 2.0 series is a subset of Ampule, AMP's ongoing podcast series to highlight speakers who would have presented at our 2020 National Convention. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, you can visit our website m2020.com.au or our parent website amsa.org.au. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not definitively represent those of AMSA or their subsidiaries. If you would like to know more about our official public policies, please visit our website at amsa.org.au and select Advocacy followed by Official Policy. This episode of Ampule was hosted, edited and produced by Jasmine Debussy with music by James Palmier.